0: And happy Easter. Thank you for your patience with us. For all of you here in South Auditorium, North Auditorium, and all the various concourses around the campus. Those of you watching online, those of you watching on television, it's just such a joy to greet you on this day. And I haven't done this, you know, we started having services on Friday and then yesterday and today. This is the last service. Uh, It takes us a thousand volunteers to pull off a weekend here at New Spring, and if you appreciate all the people who've been here all weekend serving and volunteering, would you let them know today? When I was a kid growing up, I used to hear about churches and all they talk about is money. I've always joked and said, they're going to say about New Spring, all they talk about is volunteers, but they just mean so much to us, and thank you for being here today. Well, on that first Easter Sunday, the unexpected happened. At three o'clock on Friday afternoon, Jesus of Nazareth was pronounced dead by a Roman soldier, but on Easter Sunday morning, he walked out of his grave under his own power. Nobody in Jerusalem expected that. Not Pilate, the Roman governor who had signed off on his execution, not the religious elite who had championed his death, and especially not his followers. It's really important for us to understand that not even his followers expected him to get up. I mean, some of them were scared and in hiding. Others were angry and depressed, mad at themselves for hitching their hopes to Jesus. And still others had just given up hope completely, and all they planned to do was come back Sunday morning and finish embalming his body. I repeat, nobody expected him to come back to life, even even though he said he would. But we don't blame them. At least I don't. Because death seems to have a particular power. It takes the game clock to all zeros. You know, if you like sports like I do, you know, as long as there's a few seconds left in the game, there's always the hope that something good might happen. But hey, when Gonzaga sank that last basket last night, <laughs> UCLA was finished. The game clock went to zeros. You, could, you know, UCLA could have talked about what might have, could have, should have been. But the game clock is at zeros. And I'm not trying to compare death to an NCAA game. But death can be like that. You know, before death comes, there's always the hope of maybe healing or maybe some kind of last moment invention, but death takes the clock to zeros. You remember when you were in, in, in science in, in high school or in college, you learned Newton's first law of motion, which is a body at rest tends to stay at rest. I'm not sure Newton had a dead body in mind, but really no place is that more clear than a body at rest, a dead body tends to stay at rest. A few years ago, I read something humorous. You know how it is when when governments communicate. Every once in a while, things can get kind of quirky. And I'm not picking on them. It's just government communication can be strange. And this was a letter from a county department of social services. I think it was in South Carolina, but I'm not sure. But here's what it said. To whom it may concern, your benefits will be stopped immediately because we have received notice that you passed away. You may reapply (laughs) if there is a change in your circumstances. (laughs) But that's the problem with death, isn't it? There's not a change in the circumstances. I've had the joy of pastoring for 44 years. I'm in my 36th year here at New Spring, and I've I've conducted over 1,000 funerals, way over 1,000 funerals. And just in the essence of being academically honest, i stood beside hundreds of caskets, and frankly, nobody ever got up out of one and went home with us. That's just the way death is. Now, here's the thing about us with Easter. We know how the story ends, and we sort of bake the resurrection into the narrative. I mean, I I was thinking about this when I drove into the first service last night. I was driving into the... Parking lot, like you did a little while ago, and I saw our sign announcing the unexpected Easter. And the first thought that crossed my mind is, the one we were celebrating is going to check us out this weekend. And I thought to myself, I hope I just don't let him down. But see, I know how the story ends. But I just want to take you back to that first Easter, and I want us to all just start at this, at this point of recognizing that what happened was unexpected, and it means this: if Jesus did get out of his grave, it's the most. most important event in human history. I love history. You Newspringers know that. Man, when, when YouTube came along, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world because I can go back and watch all these historical things and watch the news clips of things that happened 40, 50, 60 years ago. I'm so pathetic, I watch press conferences of Lyndon Johnson and John Kennedy. That's how bad I am. I love history. And I love studying the things that happened, but I'll tell you, as, as monumental and cataclysmic as some of the historical events are, If a man died on crucifixion, he was pronounced dead at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon, Sunday morning, he walks out of his grave under his own power. I got to say, that's the biggest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. So in this brief message that I have with you, let's ask two essential, maybe quintessential questions. And the first question is, did it happen? Faith does not come easy for me. I'm always a little envious of my wife, Mary Alice, because faith and spirituality come so easy to her. Me, I'm one of those people that likes to see the evidence placed on the table. I was a debater in high school and college, and I understand how evidence works, and I know how to use evidence, and if you've ever done competition debate or if you've ever practiced law, you know you have to be able to practice, you have to be able to debate and and argue for things that you don't necessarily believe, and you understand how evidence can be utilized and Manipulated. And I understand that. And so, just in the essence of full disclosure today, I'm gonna to just turn the cards over and I'm gonna give you some evidence. And I think I think I will pass the test of having used evidence correctly. So let's ask the question: Did it happen? Well, this isn't the strongest proof, but let's start here. First of all, Jesus said he would rise again, he claimed to have arisen. And there was an empty tomb. Start with the reality that no other leader in human history ever said he or she would do that. I mean, Jesus said, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. Like for those of you who like old sports history, just like Babe Ruth pointed to left field and said, I'm going to hit the ball over that fence. Jesus said he would rise again. And there was an empty grave. So why would other leaders of philosophies and religions not make that claim? We've already talked about it. Graves have a stubborn way of staying filled. And it's real, real hard to get a dead person to reappear. You know, you can pull all kinds of tricks and, you know, with magic and with illusion, and you can wow a crowd. But it's very, very hard to get a dead person to reappear. So did it happen. This one is big. There were witnesses. Around A.D. 60, Paul wrote to the city of Corinth. Corinth. And Corinth uh, is interesting because I think it's more like the United States than any other city in the first century world. Corinth was where roads crossed. And there was a confluence of all kinds of thinking and philosophy. There was Roman muscle, there was Greek intellectualism, Eastern mysticism, Jewish religion, and all kinds of schools of thought. And Paul understood that when he came with the message of the resurrection of Jesus, that they were going to be skeptical. And here's what he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 followers. Watch the prepositional phrase, at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles, last of all, by me. Just so we don't miss Paul's point, he is saying to the Corinthians, hey, these people are still alive. Here's their address. Go talk to them. They were eyewitnesses. They saw it. And then he he makes this extraordinary point. He said that... um, 500 people saw him at one time. In just a moment, I'm going to share with you various theories that skeptics have come up with to try to disprove the resurrection. But let me get out of order and go ahead and give you one right now. There's the thought that um, Jesus' followers wanted him to rise so much that they hallucinated that they saw him. Now, here's my question. How do you get 500 people to have the same hallucination at one time? All of y'all are too young to remember this, but I'm from the Woodstock generation. And I'll be the first to admit there were 500 people hallucinating, hallucinating but they weren't having the same hallucination. <laughs> well, I've opened that door. So let me go fishing. Let's talk about some of those theories that attempt to find naturalistic ways of explaining the unexpected Easter. Here was the one that was contemporaneous with the story. It went like this. The disciples in order to perpetuate the hoax, stole the body of Jesus and claimed that he rose from the grave. There were real problems with that right out of the box, starting with the big question, why? Why would they do it? What would be their motivation? Because for the next 60 years, as they told the story of Jesus' resurrection, it got them nothing but persecution and death. I mean, I could understand if someone said, well, you know, they wanted to keep it going. And so for the next few hours, the next few days, they said Jesus rose from the grave. But when they started getting crucified for it and beaten and hacked to death, you know, they're more likely to say that something didn't happen that they saw happen. Do you know how the disciples died? James was beheaded. Peter was crucified. (laughs) I can't wait till I get to heaven. I want to meet Peter because he and I have so much in common. He, he, He talked before he thought, and that's... I think he had ADD like I do. <laughs> and Peter, what a typical personality. Peter was crucified under Nero. It was probably about AD 66. And so they said to him, look, we've had enough of your preaching. You follow Jesus. You're going to be crucified. Peter said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Crucify me upside down. I love that. That's That's personality. Andrew was beaten and fastened to an X-shaped cross. They say it took him two days to die. Bartholomew preached in India until he was crucified. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death. Philip went to eastern Turkey until he was crucified. Matthew was hacked to death with an ax in Ethiopia. Simon was crucified in Britain. The only disciple to die a natural death was John. And the Romans tried to kill him by scalding him with boiling oil, but he survived. And when he was 90 years old, they sent him out to work on this cold rock pile in the Aegean Sea called Patmos, where he wound up writing the book of Revelation. Like I said, I understand evidence. Why would they make it up? They have no motivation. I know what someone's saying. Someone's saying, Mark, people have died for hoaxes, and I hand you that. It's only been 20 years since... People flew aircraft into the Twin Towers. I I get that people will die for a hoax, but not first generation. When a hoax becomes legendary, it may be the case that some will die for it, but not that first generation who would understand that they were dying for a lie that they told. People just don't do that. But there are practical problems with anyone who would have tried to steal the body of Jesus. For starters... The enemies of Jesus went to Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor, and they said, we're afraid that his disciples will steal his body, so we want to have someone guard the tomb. And Pilate said, okay, I'm going to permit this. You have a watch. He wasn't talking about this. A watch was a contingent of 16 Roman soldiers. And the reason for 16 is that they would work in groups of four and three-hour shifts So that if you can imagine the tomb of Jesus being guarded, you have four Roman soldiers standing guard at the mouth of the grave, and the other 12 would be sleeping with their heads in to the mouth of the grave and their feet out They're sort of like spokes on a half wheel, if you can imagine that. So anyone who who would have wanted to have stolen the body of Jesus would have had to have found a way to crawl over the 12 sleeping soldiers, overpower the four who were awake, slid back a two-ton stone along the tray where it was sitting, and take out the body of Jesus. One more thing. The tomb was sealed with the seal of Rome. Rome was big on seals. (laughs) The reason why they were is they they ruled the world, and they wanted to make sure that people had confidence in the Roman system. So if Rome put a seal on something and said there were 30 gallons in it, there were 30 gallons in there. If they said there were 15 pounds in there, what that meant was that Roman experts had certified that what was in there was in there. So in order to seal the tomb of Jesus, here's what would have happened. The Roman soldiers would have gone in. They would have ascertained that indeed the body of Jesus was lying in there and that the seal would indicate that what Rome said was in there was in there. They would have taken a cord and stretched it across the mouth of the grave, fastened it on one side of the frame with wax and the other side of the grave frame with wax and the seal of Rome would have been there proclaiming, if you mess with this grave, you mess with Rome. Now one more thing probably not worth mentioning, but it's just one of my favorites. So bear with me for just a moment. Ladies, is there any man in your life who thinks he knows what he's doing, but he just doesn't have a clue? I mean, maybe you're, you know, the guy in your life gets up on Saturday morning and says, I'm going to do a project. And you're like cringing thinking my husband's hands, what they say is call an expert. (laughs) Well, okay. If you've ever felt that The burial of Jesus fits that qualification. When Jesus died on Friday afternoon, a couple of very, very famous and important men who had been secret followers of Jesus came out of the closet to take the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, he was a senator. He went to Pilate and said, look, I've got a grave. I'm going to let him have my grave. It was like a rich person's grave. And Pilate said, yes, we want the body of Jesus. And I mean, Nicodemus said, we want the body of Jesus. And Pilate said, that's fine. You can have it. So they take Jesus off the cross, and now they have the job of embalming Jesus, but they don't have the first clue how it's done. They just know that you wrap the body in really, really expensive spices. What They, they wrapped him in dry spices. They needed, moist, they needed ointment and something in there to, to make it work. And that's why when you read the Bible about the women who are going to the tomb of Jesus on Sunday morning, they're just going to go back and do the job right. That's a fact. But here's what I find interesting about that. You know, if you were really, really rich, you might be buried with five pounds of spices. I mean, this was a sign of wealth. As as far as I can tell historically, only one person was buried with 40 pounds of spices. It was a Greek philosopher who was beloved by the entire nation of Greece back about four or five hundred years before Jesus. He was buried with 40 pounds of spices. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they didn't know anything about burying a body, but they said, hey, if some Greek philosopher is worth 40 pounds, Jesus is worth twice that much. And they brought 75 pounds of dry spices and wrapped the body of Jesus. Just for reference point, that's worth somewhere between $100,000 and $200,000. But here's my thing. They had wrapped the body of Jesus with all those pounds of dry spices. If somebody had tried to tear open the grave clothes to get the body of Jesus out, it would have woke people up on the west side of Jerusalem when all those spices hit the air. Well, there's one more theory, but it definitely is so preposterous. It's not worth mentioning. It's called the swoon theory. And that idea is that Jesus didn't really die. You know, he revived in the cool dampness of the grave. But think with me for a moment, after being beaten to the point of death, the unspeakable torture of crucifixion, being pronounced dead by a Roman officer who knew what death looked like, and the suffocating burial wrapping, after all that, if Jesus had showed up in that condition, I don't think resurrection is a word that anybody would have used. Many, many, many years ago when I was in college, I read this. You know, there was a liberal preacher who taught that jesus really didn't rise from the grave and a woman was in his church and she wrote a bible scholar this message dear sir our preacher said that jesus swooned on the cross and then his disciples nursed him to health what do you think signed bewildered the answer came back dear bewildered beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails 39 times nail him to a cross hang him in the sun for six hours run a spear through his side embalm him and put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours to see what he looks like well i know that's facetious but it just goes to show the extreme lengths that skeptics have gone to try to disprove the disprovable. Almost 100 years ago, what we would call today an investigative journalist set out to write the definitive book debunking the resurrection of Christ. He was tired of Christians, and he was like, I'm going to study this out, and I'm going to write the book that once and for all will lay to rest the myth of Jesus rising from the grave. But the more he investigated the proofs I've shared, and many, many more. He did a 180, and he wound up writing an almost hour-by-hour examination, forensic examination of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and putting it all in a book. I read this book last month again called Who Moved the Stone? Hey, listen, guys, I'm just giving you a thumbnail sketch today. If you really want to read the evidence, that's a good place to start. But I remember reading in the preface that he wrote this small paragraph, and I want to share it with you today. He said, Somehow the perspective shifted. Not suddenly as in a flash of insight or inspiration, but slowly, almost imperceptibly by the very stubbornness of the facts themselves. Here at New Spring, for many years, we had the longest-serving judge in Sedgwick County. He was one of my best friends. He was one of our deacons. His name was Paul Clark. And before Paul was sent to the bench... He had been a lawyer for the state of Kansas, and he'd tried so many cases. And Paul was sort of that quintessential country lawyer that's way smarter than his demeanor suggests. And even though I've been here for so many years, Paul knew I came from Texas, and he's always wanted to introduce Kansas to me, so he always knew some country lawyer, some country judge, and he would drive me out there to meet him, we'd have lunch, and he'd tell me stories about the cases he'd sat on and tried. And so many times Paul would look at me and grin and smile and say, Pastor, facts are stubborn things. So did it happen? There are reasons, solid reasons, why hundreds of millions have believed this story for so long. For the reasons I've given and many, many more, it remains one of the most evidence-based certainties of the ancient world. The second and last question that it raises is far more personal, and it's this. If Jesus came back to life and walked out of his grave nearly 2,000 years ago, does it mean anything to us today? Does it mean anything in 2021? Does it make any difference? It makes all the difference in the universe. First of all, it means death is not the cosmic stop sign. We don't think much about death in in our Western world. I mean, Eastern cultures think more about it than we do, but we don't think too much about it. We sort of put it out of mind, but that's kind of foolish because, as somebody said, the statistics on death are one out of every one dies. (laughs) But if Jesus came out of his grave, let let me put that out there again. If Jesus came out of his grave, death is not the end of you. Jesus said this in seven words. Because I live you will live also. Notice our living forever is contingent upon Jesus' living. You sang it a few moments ago. You know, when we sang the song, if you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. Because I live, you will also live. If Jesus had not risen from the grave, that could have been chalked up to empty air. But it's more than that. Death is not what it appears to be. Five years ago, I stood on this stage and I preached preached the Easter sermon. It is what it is, but it's not what it seems. And death is not what it seems. No wonder David, in writing the 23rd Psalm, said, Yea, though I'll walk through the valley of the what? Shadow of death. Shadow of death is a metaphor that means that death is not quite what it looks like. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather get hit by a truck or the shadow of a truck? See, if you follow Jesus Christ, if he's your Lord and Savior, you're not going to get hit by death. You're just going to get hit by the shadow of death. Jesus put it this way. He said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Someone's saying, wait a minute, Mark. You just said a little while ago you stood by hundreds of caskets and nobody ever got up. And now this verse of Jesus saying we will never die? Work with me for a minute. I can say that I see you, but I don't. By the way, you look good today. Real nice. I can say that I see you, but I don't see you. I see the body you live in. See, you're, you're not a body that's got a soul and spirit. You're a soul and spirit that has a body. And death is just when this body wears out and it stays behind. But Jesus said the real you, the part of you that loves, that feels, that's alert, that's cognitive, that chooses, that part of you is going to live forever. I've got non-theist friends who say, Mark, you're talking about the brain. No, the brain is just the organ that the soul uses. Outside of my family, this church is the love of my life. And having served as a pastor since I was 28, there's so many stories. Of sitting beside the bedside of someone who is about to cross over, and and I've been with some newspringers who were alert right up until the end, and I wish I could just take you to those places and let you listen to what they said. I've heard them say, Pastor, can you hear the music? I've had them tell me about loved ones that they were seeing and, and talking to, and I would find out from other family members they'd never met that loved one. Why are we surprised at that? We talk about NDEs or near-death experiences and people walking down long hallways toward light. Why are we surprised at that? Because the one who walked out of his grave under his own power said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. In fact, when you die, if you're a Christ follower, you know, if you say, what's it like to die, you won't know. Someone will have to tell you when you get to heaven. Down in Kansas, they're having your funeral. They're going to all leave and go eat potato salad when it's over. And you're going to be fine. You have the promise of the one who walked out of his own grave on that. Secondly, quickly, it means the people we love who have died are not lost. It's been a rough year for the United States and for the whole world for that matter. Half a million people in America have died with COVID. And for some of us, death has been up close and personal this year. My mom died in November. But if Jesus came back to life, it means the people we love are not lost. I had friends who called me, and they said, Mark, I hear that you lost your mom. And I understood the cultural context in which they were saying that, but I didn't lose my mom. Hey, you don't lose something if you know where it is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul said the truth is Christ has been raised up the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. Last November, we had my mom's funeral here at New Spring, and then my parents are both from the hill country of South Texas. And so we shipped her body down there, and we had another funeral in, uh, in that area. We have a little family cemetery that's uh, it's been around for so long. It's a, it's, it's a state historical marker spot with graves going back to the 1800s. And the night before her service down there, I walked through the cemetery. I kind of checked out the plot where she was going to be buried. In. And I walked and I saw some old markers that have intrigued me ever since I've been a very little boy. There are some markers there that don't have a name. They don't have a date of birth or death. They just have one word on there, unknown. And I thought, I don't know who's buried here, but God knows this person. You know, Cicero said that people live in our memories People don't live in our memories. I mean, if that's the best that we can hope for, I mean, nobody's going to remember us about 100 years after we die. But we don't live in people's memories. It's not people's memories that keep us alive. Our loved ones who have died are with Jesus. Okay, I want to close with this. The resurrection of Jesus means one more thing, but this one may surprise you. I mean, certainly it means death is not the end. Our loved ones who have died are safe with him. But the resurrection of Jesus, for lack of a better word, it's our ticket into heaven. Here at New Spring, we always say that we don't like religion. We don't mean by that, we, it's not that we don't like people who are in religion, it's just the very concept of religion. Religion is a systematized projection of what God is like. I mean, humans project what God is like and they invent religions. That's why religions are all pretty similar. But the Bible is not a religion. If you open up the Bible... It's the story of God's attempt or wish to bring you to him. Do you know how you go to heaven? I've asked people that so many times. Do you know for sure you're going to heaven and people say things like, well, you know, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Buddhist or I'm a Catholic or I think I'm a nice person. If you were to open the Bible and try to find the place where the Bible says this is how you go to heaven, would you be surprised to learn that it, it's all about the resurrection of Jesus? Let me prove it. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which is perhaps the clearest verse explaining how you go to heaven, listen to these words. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, look at this, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't that amazing? Going to heaven is not about joining a church or becoming an adherent to a religion or trying to pay God back for all the stuff we've done wrong. It comes down to believing the good news that Jesus was raised to life. Now, I'll be the first to admit that inherent in that is the fact that he died for our sins. It is believing that he was raised to life. tell you why I love that. Anybody can do that, which means I can. I'd be lousy at religion. I have ADD, I'd forget all the rules. And you know how good do you have to be to go to heaven? You have to be perfect. I can't be perfect for 10 minutes. I'm serious. I can't, be, I can't go 10 minutes doing everything I'm supposed to do and not doing anything I'm supposed to, you know, not supposed to do. But I can believe. I can believe that Jesus died for me. And I can believe that he was raised to life. And here's what the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I can ask for that. See, eternal life is a gift. You don't do anything to earn a gift. I mean, God's not saying make a down payment and then you got to follow through and pay the rest of it. God's like, here is a gift. I want you in heaven. I want you to be my daughter. I want you to be my son. I want to adopt you. And here's what I'm asking. Jesus has done the heavy lifting. I'm asking you to believe. Listen to this verse. God saved you by his grace when you believed. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. So on this Easter, and you're you're in the last service that we have for Easter. I'm so thankful to have this time with you. We've had such a wonderful time with all these services. I'm going to miss them when they're over. But here's what I want to do as I close out this service. I want to give you an opportunity, if you would like to ask God, for this assurance that you have eternal life. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and these aren't magic words, and I'll pray each line slowly so you can decide if you want to say this to God because the important thing is not the words it's what you mean. So I'm going to ask us all to pray for just a moment, and, and if you've already settled this better, you may want to pray for something else on this Easter Sunday, but if you're here and you want to settle this, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, I'm broken, and I can't fix myself, but I believe you love me very much. I believe Jesus died for my sins, and here we go. I believe you raised him from the dead, and since Jesus is alive, I want him as my Savior and my King. Thank you for this gift in Jesus' name. Um, if you just prayed with me a few moments ago, I have a gift for you. And it's it looks like a box that looks like this. And what's in the box is a New Spring Bible like I preach from. And then you could say, well, Mark, I still have a lot of questions. I, I prayed with you, but I'm not sure exactly what I did. I have a little book I wrote. I have ADD, so I don't write long books. It's called My New, My New Walk with God. It'll answer a lot of questions. It's in here. There's a journal in here and some coupons. And guys, I promise you, this will not cost you anything. We have no agenda here. We just want to take... Your first step's walking with you in faith. And so here's what you can do. If you want the info centers to be ready for you, you can just take your phone out right now and text the word unexpected to 97,000. But hey, I'm, I'm, I'm tech challenged. Don't have my phone with me right now anyway. Really, all I have to just go back and say, I pray with Mark and they won't hassle you or stalk you or ask for your routing number or anything like that. They just want to give this to you. And if you're watching online, same thing. Just text the word unexpected to 97,000 and then just follow the instructions. And we'll mail this out to you. It's absolutely free of charge. I promise you, as God is my witness, no hidden agenda. I know sometimes religious organizations do that kind of stuff, but this is just our way of saying, let us walk with you. So this is free and available. There are just a couple more things coming up at New Spring. And uh, for all of you who are New Springers, uh, thank you so much for being here. For those of you who are our guests, you are very, very precious to you to us. And we just hope you feel the love from the moment you drive on the parking lot.